Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wild. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on a hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake. When the swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of God. So, happy uh, Sunday, as whenever you're listening to this. Um, this week in the lectionary brings us back to this text from Luke 8, verses 26 through 39. You know, there's so much to unpack here. Um, it's definitely not the easiest text to work through, um, particularly in trying to understand it within our context of everything that's going on this week. Um, as we celebrate Juneteenth, as we continue to lift up pride, uh, there are so many different intersections that we can explore. So uh, I will introduce a few thoughts, but uh, as always, it is just the starting point, and we'll see where our conversation takes us. So Ryan has presented us with really fascinating and important conversations regarding mental health and the biblical text, especially as we've discussed other texts like this before. And so as we take time to celebrate and honor Juneteenth this week, um, we can relate this text in some ways to our own continued challenges of facing our unconscious bias, leaning into cultural humility instead of merely just competency, and continuing to be an active catalyst for movement. So I'm curious of what is your first impression of the text as you listen to it? whether or not you've heard it before, what assumptions come up for you? And I think this exercise, especially with this text, is helpful in understanding unconsciously what lies um, beneath our surface and in our um, kind of the back of our mind as we read through something like this. 
how you think or assume about this man, the legion, or the town dwellers, all point to presuppositions that your life experience has brought you to think, even unconsciously. Right? And this can be for better or for worse, um, and more often it's this gray area in between. And even if, like, consciously, you may not agree with these unconscious thoughts, um, it's so important to understand our bias, and because every single person has one. This doesn't have to condemn us. Instead, it becomes our starting point for how we move throughout the world and how we might seek to change ourselves so we reflect harmony between our thoughts, actions, and being. So within this text, the town, Jesus included, are all living under Roman occupation. The man that Jesus speaks to, whose legion of internal effects hold power, is marginalized even further as a result of a community unable or unwilling to provide care for him. His life may have been shaped by loss of home, loss of loved ones, pain, suffering, and violence, as we are only getting this intersection into this man's life. We don't know what had come before, we just know that he had been experiencing this for a long time, that he lived basically among the graves, among the tombs, and had been outcast. And so as we look at this text, we see Jesus's tangible social action. He does what is necessary to care for this man's body, but also his soul and his psyche. He clothed him, fed him, restored him to relationship with his community. And from a disability theology standpoint, there are several leading theologians that agree that the bottom line isn't about the physical healing that Jesus is said to do, and this is true in other texts as well. Instead, we look primarily about how Jesus restores their belonging within their community. Jesus held no assumption about this man regarding the state that he was in, but the healing and liberation that was central to Jesus' mission is epitomized here um, in this man's life. He begins homeless, naked, isolated, chained, living among the tombs, and therefore considered perpetually unclean and experiencing great mental and emotional torment. But by the story's end, he's welcomed, clothed, and sitting together. He goes from outcast to insider, isolated to belonging, homeless to feeling right at home. This text tells the story of what it looks like to understand the social reality that had caused a break, had caused multiple levels of tension, and Jesus' choice to step towards rather than away. In contrast, right, the people within Gerasenes didn't know what else to do. They had left this man for a long time. They only, re they only really knew him on the basis of other. Right, insider, outsider, but Jesus sees a third option, an alternative way to the th way that things were. He knew it was possible to restore the breaks in relationship, to care for the need, to be present in the storm of what this man had gone through. As we look towards how this Sunday intersects with Juneteenth, the history of this now federal holiday illustrates the reality of fractured relationships amongst humanity. This is dating back to June 19, 1865, when enslaved African Americans in Texas 
finally learned that they were free. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation had been declared as of January 1st, 1863, all slaves in rebellious southern states were free. It took more than two years for the news to spread to Texas and for officials there to finally announce that slavery had been abolished. And so this holiday commemorating that day is now known as Juneteenth, or Freedom Day, as it marks that day that all black people in the South were finally free. And slavery was outlawed nationwide within the ratification of the 15th Amendment six months later. June 19th also happens to be the day that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed by the Senate, which was prohibiting discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin when it comes to employment, voting, use of public facilities. And, you know, Juneteenth has been celebrated by African Americans for generations, but it's only made it into common conversation in the last few years. 2021, over 150 years later, it finally became a federal holiday. And this is a huge part of America's history. And yet, it's been a battle to get proper recognition just for the celebration itself. So as we talk about the work of anti-racism, we've looked towards sources like James Cone, other womanist and liberation theologians, and other modern leaders who illustrate the divine's call to reorder this, the disordered powers that afflict both individuals and communities. And so to do so, we also need tools, right? And of course, I share all of this with the full knowledge that this is not your first nor your last interaction with this material. I just reshare this uh, to prepare us for a conversation that again, is not meant to come to any single answer, and I, I don't claim to be an expert in any of this, but instead I hope we can understand that we are all walking each other along. And so with that, we can move into brave space together. And as we think about tools, perhaps it can feel overwhelming in the midst of terminology and new information that continues to move us forward. We've talked about unconscious bias and the importance of taking that time to stop and assess what lives within you. And I also think it's important to strive towards a space of cultural humility. This is different from another term that was popular mostly in white spaces throughout the last decade or so, being cultural competency, which while the concept might be a stepping stone, it's not fully encompassing. Cultural competency is about knowledge and training. It's the idea that you can become competent in other cultures, like taking a college course and reading all of the available textbooks, but never once experiencing a lived reality. It also supports this idea, which is a myth, that culture is a monolith and doesn't change or evolve. And not to continue to expand on this idea of calling in versus calling out, but I do think it's helpful as we acknowledge our growing edge in the work of anti-racism. Cultural humility inspires introspective co-learning. There's no end goal or end result, but the for, first and foremost, it attempts to diminish power dynamics between advocate and survivor. And that last part is essential. How do we understand our own role within our community or communities 
that truly pursue leveling out power. That means that it's not about you know, us. It's not about Mission Hills getting props for doing the work that should be part of the norm. It's not about being a gold star ally, but what it's truly about is living into a tangible and simultaneously cosmic reality that brings us into full relationship with one another. So we walk the balance between what we know justice to be and perhaps what we want justice to be. There's a difference between doing you know, so much justice work because it's truly our capacity um, and doing so much because doing more would be uncomfortable, uh, that doing more would mean giving up power or recognition, um, even if we would be truly moving into a space of justice. And that is hard. <laughs> But this is what we talk about when we speak to radical change. It should be hard. It should challenge the status quo. It should be messy. And sometimes um, it means that our family members who want us to move along or not talk about that here because it's too much. It means having something to be able to move yourself and others forward. And after all, um, if we heed Jesus' call, right, there's no such thing as a bystanding church. We continue to grow together. And so this week, we want to uplift the work of those who are the experts in the field and who are members of our greater LA community. I posted um, different resources of black educators that you can support and black-owned businesses near us. It's really one of the most tangible ways to support anti-racism work is one, learning but two, supporting, especially financially, the work of those who have been on top of it, have experienced the generationally inherited history that most history books would rather exclude, um, and those who have already put in so much time and learning um, into this space. And this is one way that we seek to emulate Jesus in restoring relationship to and within community. Right? Jesus sent the man freed from these demons to reintegrate into his society. But full integration of African Americans has been blocked over generations by, by numbers of different ways, whether that's redlining and housing discrimination, segregated schools, denied access to employment, a criminal justice system that disproportionately targets them and sentences them to longer prison terms. Um, there are so many ways in which it has never been equal. And as Ibrahim X. Kendi explains, for every $100 of wealth that white families hold, black families hold just $5. The racial wealth gap will not repair itself, and it's growing. So the wealth gap, as well as the gap in experience and treatment in a society that's divided along racial lines, reparations is viewed not through a lens of violence as over and against, but as an investment in reconciliation and the healing of our nation. While it does involve money, much of which would come from divesting from dehumanizing wars abroad to invest in peace and in people, but beyond money, reparations is a renunciation of this national original sin of white supremacy into action. It is moving into, again, radical space that is hard, is messy, is challenging. 
But as we, and as we look towards the end of the story, Jesus' restorative action was feared, misunderstood. He was pushed out for challenging the situation and moving the man forward in life and relationship. And while he was liberated from his own experience, the liberation of the townspeople would depend on whether or not they recognize his full humanity and how they welcome him back among the community. And we don't see that. We don't get the rest of the story. But we do have a say in how our own will proceed. And that is where we pick up. And I'm excited to celebrate with you and, of course, join in the conversation together. Uh, I know it can sometimes pack a lot into a short period of time or a short um, podcast, but that is the beauty of we're not done with it yet. So to close us, um, I will read a part of our communion reading that we hear every week. And may these words continue to be true and holy. In this place, we pray for change, to become new vessels full of courage, wisdom, hope, and love. May we become a new people, changed, healed, grown strong, and hopeful by God and one another's love. Amen.